Hey everyone, it's Adam Farkas. Welcome back to another edition of ODY Radio. I'm here today with Paul Farkas. Hi everyone. And today we got a really special show for you. We have Gil Weber, MBA, and um, if you're an ODY regular, you know Gil's name for sure. Um, he's a consultant on our site. He gives us a great deal of advice on practice management issues. And today we're going to have a talk that's actually one of the most important that you can have because this is all about managed care contracts and how to negotiate them, how to get on panels, and so forth. Um, so this is the lifeblood of most people's practices. And we're, we're very happy to have Gil here today to actually walk us through all the gory details um, of dealing with managed care contracts. So Gil, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Paul. So, Gil, I guess question number one uh, from me would be, do you think optometrists can actually negotiate meaningful changes to their managed care contracts? Well, Adam, I think if you first to differentiate, is this a managed vision care contract as opposed to a medical eye care contract, the answer is definitely different. If you're talking a managed vision care contract and you're talking dealing with VSP or IMED or Davis or, or, or that type of thing, it probably is not going to be possible to negotiate a contract because those entities are not used to individually contracting with the doctors. Uh, they basically know they have a doc on every block. If Dr. X or Dr. Y won't take the contract, Dr. Z probably will. And so with those big vision care plans, obviously there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, ODs just don't have much chance of negotiating. With medical eye care, if you're talking with an Aetna or a Blue Cross Blue Shield, they're used to dealing with individual providers, you know, across all medical specialties, including optometry. And it doesn't necessarily mean that optometrists are going to have an easy job, but they certainly are going to be dealing with people who at least are willing, for the most part, to talk to individual providers. Circumstance-specific, in some states, yes, in some states, no. You know, you may be able to talk to Aetna uh, in one state, and yet a doctor talking to an Aetna in another state has no chance. You never know until you ask. But at least with medical eye care, we're seeing across the country more and more opportunities for optometrists to participate. Right. And do you think that if, if I, as an OD, you know, if I'm a small fry out there just trying to get started in doing this, do you think it would be better for me to work through an attorney or a consultant to actually get started doing it, or should I strike out on my own and give it a shot? Well, ultimately, you're going to have to do it on your own, I believe, because I think it's not cost-effective for a small optometric practice uh, to engage a consultant or attorney to act as their negotiator. There's too much time. It, these, these contracts sometimes take months and months and months from initial contact to the actual signing. And you don't want to be on an hourly basis or retainer basis, I think, with an attorney or a consultant going through the whole process. Now, I do think you absolutely need an attorney or a consultant to review the contract and guide you through what all the legalese mumbo-jumbo really means in business terms but the actual contract, I think, has to fall to the optometrist or perhaps the optometrist office manager, someone who has the time and the initiative to do it. Now, if no one in the practice has the time or the initiative or the desire to do it, you may need to hire a consultant. But in my opinion, it's just not cost-effective for a non-surgical practice to have someone do it for you. Well, Gil, I have a question then. Uh, you, you're a nationally known consultant. Uh, would you be willing to go into a practice that is mainly a low seven-figure practice. Would that be worth it to have someone like you? Well, go into the practice, no. Um, I've been doing these contracts now for uh, more than 20 years. In all that time, I've never yet actually gone to the practice. 
Uh, it's not, again, cost-effective, I think, for the practice to pay me to fly across the country and go there and sit and review contracts on-site. Much more cost-effective for them to send me contracts. I edit, review the contracts, send them back reports. We talk by phone. Uh, I think that's a much better way of doing it. This, this particular type of consultant, I don't think, needs to be face-to-face -face work. A phone, a fax, email, you've got everything you need. Do you, do you recommend that, that a practice go for it all at once and get on a bunch of panels and, and get, get the pain over with, sort of like ripping the Band-Aid off fast, or do you do it sort of piecemeal? Piecemeal. Uh, I always, for example, recommend to a practice that you start off with a one-year contract initially. Even though you may get a proposal for, say, a three-year contract, I didn't see initial contracts proposed for five-year terms. I think you're nuts to do that because you have no experience with the plan. You don't know what they're going to be like. It's sort of like getting married without an engagement. I recommend you go slowly. You do one contract for one year. Uh, maybe do a second contract for one year. You get some experience. If things work out, you may decide to renew for a multi-year extension. You may not. But you just don't want to go and jump in with both feet for long terms or lots of contracts not knowing what you're doing. Right. In fact, that's actually funny that you mentioned that because you see on ODWire all the time where somebody says, I finally dumped XYZ plan and boy, don't I feel great. And I think the reason is probably because when they went in, going in, they didn't really know what they were doing. Um, so they got sort of a bad deal and now they're so happy to exit it. So that's the sort of thing that I guess you want to try to avoid. Now, Gil, when you ask about an attorney, so you, you mentioned that you, you consult an attorney. Is there a, a specialty uh, that you look for in an attorney to, to negotiate these contracts? Well, typically the attorney who negotiates the lease on your building or the on your equipment or that type of thing is not the attorney who has the expertise in this area. You want to get with someone who not only understands managed care law and managed care contracting, but also understands the nuances of your state law as it applies to managed care contracting. So typically you can get referrals to this sort of attorney from your state optometric society or a county optometric society. Uh, they'll be able to direct you to someone who has the necessary expertise to help you understand what all that legalese mumbo-jumbo really means. From a legal perspective, a consultant can help you understand what that legalese mumbo-jumbo means from a business perspective. Right. So I guess the question then is if I, you know, am starting out and I don't want to actually engage the consultant yet because I don't want to, you know, ring up a huge number of billable hours, who do I actually contact at these organizations if I wanted to go ahead and call them myself? Okay. Uh, the thing that's important to understand is you don't want to reach too high and you don't want to reach too low. It makes no sense, for example, to call the president or CEO or even a senior VP of one of these health plans or someone at DSP or IMED, for example, if those people have time to talk to you, they've got big problems because they should have bigger fish to fry than talking to a, a solo practitioner or even a small group practitioner. On the other hand, you don't want to be talking to a message taker who can't make any decisions and only sort of acts as an intermediary, sort of like the secretary you call to try and make an appointment with someone and they uh, never get the message to the person you want to talk to. So you want to try and get into uh, a department which is typically called like provider relations or provider contracting or network development or something along those lines that has some sort of a connotation of contracting or signing on provider groups. Get into that department and then you want to try and get hold of someone who is, has a title perhaps of provider relations representative, uh, network contracting representative, uh, network development manager, again something like that is someone who clearly is involved in 
the development of contracts and negotiations. Now, in each plan, there is someone who's responsible for signing up providers in a specific area, or once a provider is signed up, is responsible for managing that client's account. So in the contracts that you do have in place, there will be someone responsible for your contract. That person, of course, could change from time to time. If you're going in cold, then what you want to do is try and determine who has responsibility for, let's say, your community, uh, your county, your state. And again, it's going to depend upon where you're located. If you're in California, for example, there's going to be different health plan people for Northern California and Southern California. If you're in Southern California, there are probably going to be different people for Los Angeles County as opposed to Orange County as opposed to San Diego County. If you're in a smaller state like Rhode Island, there may be one person responsible for the entire state for optometry contracting. So you need to find out, uh, perhaps by asking colleagues who they've talked to, perhaps by asking, uh, let's say maybe someone you know, uh, a physician, a non-ophthalmic physician. Maybe you know a gastroenterologist, a cardiologist who signed up, let's say, with Cigna or Humana, and you talk to their office manager and say, who do you guys talk to for contracting here in, you know, in our, our city here in Rhode Island or our city here in Connecticut or, or North Carolina? And you can at least get a lead into the department. Now, that person may not be responsible also for optometry, but at least once you get in, you've gotten to the right place. Now you just have to get the right person in the right place. So you've got to do some probing. You've got to do some probing. Right. So I guess then the question is, let's say that you've, you've done it, you've gotten through the maze, you've found the right person. Question I have is, which contracts should you actually negotiate first? Okay. Let's assume that you already signed on with two or three or more plans to allow you to do medical eye care, and you're trying to decide, what do I need to renegotiate? You want to ask your practice computer to give you two reports, both of them in rank descending order. The first report is going to tell you which of those plans, which of those contracts send you the most patients over some period of time, let's say over the past 12 or 18 months. The second report, again in rank descending order, says which of these contracts has sent us the most money for the same time period. Now, hopefully, those two reports will run roughly in parallel. They won't be exactly in parallel, but you're looking for the contract to send you the most patients and the most money. That's a good contract. That's when you always want to try and renegotiate to make it better. But you're also looking for the warts. You're looking for the contracts to send you lots of patients, but relatively little money. And on those, you're working for way too little return on your investment in time. And so that's a contract needs to be renegotiated to try and make it better. And if you find that you can't make that one better where you're working so hard for so little return, that may be a candidate for offloading, for dumping it. And as you alluded to earlier, the doctor may say, you know, thank goodness I got rid of that contract. It was a real turkey. So you look at your, your reports that way, and you also try and determine then within those contracts, where do I need to try and renegotiate? And so you may decide that for contract X, let's say, uh, we're getting paid okay on the eye care code, but we're getting paid pretty awfully on the EMMs. And so you may want to go in and try and do a, a focused appeal for reimbursements, increase just on the EMMs and leave everything else alone. Or you may decide that some of the EMMs are paying you okay, but others are not, in which case you might want to go in for a CPT specific request of increases. There are many, many different ways of approaching 
negotiation process, but all predicated upon what each contract means to your individual practice in numbers of patients and dollars over some period of time. Right. And here's an interesting thing. And I, and I guess with your experience, you might be able to give us some insight. When you're talking about these different issues in negotiations, do you have a sense when you're negotiating which um, terms are usually more successfully altered versus ones where people really you know, stick their feet down and say, we're not changing this? Or is it different from company to company? Well, it's always different company to company. And it's, it really is, you can't, for example, make a list of the most important contractual terms and say, this is, this is what every practice must do because every contract is different. And because a real problematic provision in one contract with one payer may not be a problematic provision for the same doctor with another payer. But I can give you about six or seven key areas that should always at least be looked at very, very carefully. Sure. The first thing I, first thing I always look at is the term and termination. I want to know how long is the initial term of that contract, how it's going to renew, and how do I get out of that contract if things don't work out well. Uh, I mentioned earlier that sometimes you'll be presented with a contract with an initial term of one year or two years or three years or maybe five years. It's important to know, depending on how long that initial term is, is how quickly can I get out if it turns sour. Now, if you have just a one-year contract and the contract turns sour after six months, okay, so you're locked in for six more months, you suffer, but it's no big deal. If you have a three-year contract which turns sour after six months and you're locked in now for another two and a half years, now it becomes much more problematic if you can't get out easily. So term and the ways you can get out, the termination provisions are always critical. Another critical area is amendments. How can the plan change the terms in the middle of the deal? Now, that may seem a little absurd thinking about it because you would say, okay, wait, we agreed on a contract. We said a deal is a deal. We signed it for two years. What do you mean the plan's going to change it? And the problem is, is that virtually every contract has a provision in there that says that the health plan or the payer at its own discretion can unilaterally amend the contract at any time and change anything it wants, including your reimbursements. So you may have negotiated a great contract that paid you fabulously, and you're feeling really, really comfortable, and three months after you do the deal, you get a dear doctor letter that says, dear doctor, in 60 days, we're changing the terms and we're reducing your reimbursements. And not only do they take away what you just negotiated, they cut you back to where you, below where you were before you even started. And that's because the doctor signed the contract with a provision that allows the plan to do that. So it's always critical to try and preclude or at least limit the health plan's ability to unilaterally change the terms of the contract at a minimum to preclude them being able to change the financial terms for the term of the contract. Because your financial well-being, well-being is at risk and I've seen far too many examples of good contracts that turn sour because after the doctor signed it and felt comfortable and banked a few months worth of reimbursements, the health plan took away what it gave. The third critical issue is the claim submission timeframes. What does the contract say as far as how much time you have to submit a claim and what happens if you don't timely submit? Can the health plan reject your claim? Now, if the contract says that you have 90 days to submit a claim, okay, that's fine. You should submit a claim in 90 days. But what if the payer is secondary and it takes more than 90 days for the primary payer to get you back payment? Are you now stuck? 
Well, you might be unless your contract says you have 90 days from the date of service if the payer is primary or 90 days from the date you receive the EOB from the primary if your payer is secondary. So the submission timeframes are important. The fourth critical area, claims payment timeframes. How quickly does the payer have to pay you? If the contract doesn't specify at a minimum that they'll pay you per the state's prompt payment statutes, they may not have to pay you at all in whatever time frame you think is reasonable. So it's always important to be sure that there is some anchor in there, some specified time frame within which they must pay you. And hopefully if they don't pay you within that time frame, a provision that says they pay you a penalty, perhaps interest. The next important area that every practice should look at is what happens with incorrect payments. If there's an underpayment or an overpayment or a retroactive denial, you provide care after your staff has confirmed your eligibility, you jump through all the right hoops, you submit the claim, you get paid, and six months or a year later you get a dear doctor letter saying, Mrs. Jones really wasn't eligible, we want the money back. And you say, wait a minute, I provided care based upon your authorization, I acted in good faith, I, I depended upon the, the accuracy of your, your authorization, and now you're telling me it was no good? What do you mean? And health plan says, sorry, just because you submitted the claim and we told you the patient was eligible, that's really not proof of anything. And we're taking back the money. So it's important to try and limit health plan's ability, their right to take back money after you've delivered care based upon authorization. You also want to deal with what happens if you're underpaid, what happens if you're overpaid, be specified in the contract in addition. The uh, next important critical issue, the sixth one I always highlight, is notices. And these notices are, are important information, notifications coming from the plan or from the doctor back to the plan of critical issues like changes to reimbursement, changes to the provider manual, termination. Those should always be in writing. Those should always be uh, delivered by letter or by fax. But some health plan contracts say they can deliver important notices to you by email, by electronic mail. Now, we all know that the uh, emails can be notoriously flaky. Uh, an email can be delivered to a recipient's email system, then be hit by an overly aggressive spam filter, dumped into a trash folder, and never seen by the recipient. So it was received by the system, but never delivered to the recipient. It goes unknown, unacknowledged. Now, if that was, let's say, a 90-day notice that we're reducing your reimbursements, and you only have 60 days to object, and you never get that email notice, that's a big deal. So I always encourage doctors to insist that email shall never be used as a means for delivering notices. And finally, the last of the very important issues is reimbursement. I put that last, seven out of seven, and you think, wait a minute, reimbursement's always the most important, and the answer is no. Reimbursement is not the most important. It's critical, but the best reimbursements in the world do you no good if the contract is a turkey, especially if the health plan can take back those reimbursements deny claims, cut your reimbursements, or do other things that adversely impact on your practice. So get the best reimbursements you can, but remember that the contract must be viewed in its, in, in its entirety, and the reimbursements are only a piece of the important issues that go into deciding, is this contract one that I want, or is this a contract one I can continue with? Is it worth keeping? You know, going through this whole list, uh, it it brings to the point that most optometrists don't know what they don't know. And it would seem to me that if I had a practice, uh, 
I would certainly want someone holding my hand before I sign that contract. Now, does someone like, like yourself that's a consultant look, uh, can be hired to look at the contract and not necessarily be on site to negotiate, but at least point out to the OD the weakness of the contract and what they should ask for? Sure. When, when I do a contract review, basically, here's how it works. Client will send me a contract. Let's say it's roughly 25 pages long. I'll take it apart paragraph by paragraph. I'll send back a report explaining in plain English what all that legalese mumbo-jumbo means in business terms. A 20-page contract, 25-page contract will probably result in a 15-page report. Now, I don't decipher every paragraph because, for example, the first page or two are usually definitions. They're pretty much self-explanatory. But the other stuff I'll go through and I'll explain, here's what this really means. And I will say, here's what I feel is problematic about this paragraph, about these particular words. And here is some suggested alternative language that I think would be more doctor-friendly if you can negotiate this with a plan. And here is some alternative, potentially more doctor-friendly language if the plan won't accept the first suggestion. And so I, I send that report to the doctor. The doctor then reads it, goes, oh my God, I never realized that all this stuff was in there and this is what I'm, I'm agreeing to. We then have a phone conversation, usually lasting an hour or more. We go over the contract, I explain the issues, and the first time we do this, it, it's a long contract because the initial learning curve is very, very steep because the doctor's not been exposed to what all this garbage really means. But after that, it gets much easier. But we go over the contract, and then we basically, we build a negotiations priority list based upon that doctor's issues and that doctor's individual needs. At the top of the priority list will be those issues that are so critical that if the doctor can't get some concession, some measure of change, it may be a contract that the doctor can't afford. Not that he doesn't want the contract, but it may be so onerous, basically so problematic uh, to deal with that the doctor simply can't afford the contract. In the middle will be the issues where you hope it was some give and take from both sides come to a happy middle ground. At the bottom are the issues which, if we can get some concessions, great. If we can't, it's not the end of the world. We can toss them back as bargaining chips. I then explain to the doctor, if you're going to negotiate on your own, if you're going to have, let's say, your office manager, or you're going to try and negotiate, here's how to approach the health plan. Here's how to walk the walk and talk the talk of managed care so that you don't come across as a complete neophyte. Even though you obviously are, you've never done this before, I can at least make you semi-comfortable with talking about the issues of managed care. I can help you understand that there are some issues that you simply cannot negotiate. If you do try and negotiate these issues, you come across not only as a neophyte, but as a fool. For example, there's a provision in all contracts called hold harmless or no balance billing which says the doctor cannot charge the patient more than the plan pays for the covered service. In other words, they cannot charge the difference between the, what the plan agrees to pay and usual and customary. That's called hold harmless, no balance billing. If a doctor goes to the plan and says, I want to be able to charge the member the difference between that and my usual and customary, the doctor is showing he or she knows nothing and will get nowhere in those negotiations because they obviously are asking for something that by state or federal law can't be changed. So that's how I work with the doctors. I guide them. I hold their hands. Uh, if, you know, if they want me to participate in a conference call with them, that's great. 
you know, I, I'm very, very flexible in the way I work, but the most important thing for me with, with, with the doctors is to make sure they understand what it is they're actually agreeing to so that there are no surprises at the back end. They don't call me six months later or a year later and say, Gil, they're doing this to me. How could they do it? And I say, you signed the contract. I explained to you that's what it was, and yet you went ahead and signed it anyway. Now, if the doctor signs his or her own infinite wisdom, a contract that has problematic provisions, at least at that point, they've made an educated decision. They haven't done it blindly. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for these tips today, Gil. And in part two of our interview with you uh, in our next podcast, we're going to go over some more tips for our members. Um, And people can even come to our site and post messages for you um, and have a discussion about the topics that we've just discussed today. Thanks a lot, everyone, for listening, and I'll see you online.